0: Subscribe now and download wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thanks for listening.
1: This edition of How To Be A CEO is brought to you by the AXA Startup Angel Competition. I'm Sharmadine Reed, founder and CEO of The Stack World, and I'm here to help you turn your business dream into reality. There are six chances to win the competition, including two top prizes of £25,000, mentoring from myself and leading UK founders, plus business insurance for a year thanks to AXA. Go to standard.co.uk forward slash AXA Startup Angel for details on how to enter and complete your entry by the 2nd of June, 2024. Good luck. ES Audio.
2: It's been 35 years since Terry Waite was taken captive in Beirut while negotiating with Hezbollah over the release of British hostages. Held for nearly five years, much of it in solitary confinement, he was released in 1991 and went on to co-found Hostage International, which helps people who have been kidnapped and their families. He's also become a world-renowned speaker using the awful experiences he faced to explain how hardship and stress can become a source of inner strength. I'm David Marlson from The Evening Standard, and in this edition of How To Be A CEO, we'll be talking to both Terry and the psychologist, Dr. Wolfgang Seidel, who is a partner at Mercer, working across the UK and Europe with major companies on improving workplace wellbeing. You were released from your own hostage situation just over 30 years ago. You've talked about it a lot over those 30 years. How much does talking about it help you?
0: I was uh, held captive, as you know, for almost five years. And those five years were spent in total solitary confinement. When I came out, I needed probably, probably about 12 months to begin to return to so-called normal life. And I was very fortunate. I was elected to a fellowship in Trinity Hall, Cambridge. And it was there that I was able to put down on paper the book that uh, I'd written in my head during those years of captivity. Now, I was asked at the time, do you think that by writing about it, this is therapeutic? And at the time I said, no, I don't think so. But looking back, unquestionably it was, that by writing and by somehow capturing the experience and managing it, I was able to come to terms with what had been, you know, a rather a strong, long period of deprivation. As for talking subsequently, I think by the time I'd finished the book, I'd got back into some form of equilibrium, and that talking about it uh, subsequently was a way of enabling me to use the experience uh, creatively, for many other things. So I founded, for example, Hostage International. Um, and I became more involved with the homeless and prisoners and so on. And that was a way of actually that uh, bad experience, if you like, or difficult experience. I wanted to transform it to make it into something creative. And so subsequently, the talking was not necessarily personally therapeutic.
2: Wouldn't it be easier to put that behind you and never discuss it and never relive the things that you had to go through rather than bring them up again and again?
0: Well, I suppose some people have done that. Some people can't face those bitter things in the past. But, you see, I, I have the belief, that, and it's a very simple belief, uh, and it's, it's absolutely true, that suffering is a part of human existence and that people suffer, and some people suffer through no fault of their own. And it's not fair. I mean, um, it lands on people unequally. But having having said that, I believe that suffering need not destroy, that within suffering, there are often the cr- seeds of something creative. And so by relating experiences of suffering, uh, and then pointing to the fact that Something creative can emerge from this. One has been able to take the experience and utilize it creatively rather than just looking back on it as a totally negative experience which should be shut out of life because the suffering was a part of my life um, and I, I can't ignore a part of my life. What I can do is take my life and use it creatively, which one has attempted to do.
2: Wolfgang, how important is it that when people go through struggles, Terry went through an extreme struggle, but, but people will be facing their own struggles, that they do talk about these issues, that they raise them, that they speak about it with other people?
3: Yes, from a psychological and psychiatric point of view, a lot of what Terry said resonated with me and is actually anchored in a lot of uh, psychological theory but I'm always in awe talking to Terry and it's not the first time that we are doing that because I think uh, you can get from him, you started, opened your question by saying 30 years ago and yet you can talk to Terry in the here and now and he always reflects so deeply and it doesn't sound like just a recall. It sounds like there's a lot of philosophical insight developing still now after 30 years. So that's the post-trauma growth, as we call it. And Terry himself said there is an opportunity to make sense of suffering and transcend suffering, if you like, to, to, to use another word that probably Viktor Frankl would have used, the famous Austrian psychoanalyst and psychiatrist who was incarcerated in Auschwitz, and said exactly the same as Terry said. He said, well, I kept my head above waters by thinking about the books I want to write, the speeches I want to give, and then, of course, as everyone knows, he created that wonderful theory of looking for meaning and purpose in life. And that's another way of saying, you know, make something of um, of the trauma. You said to Terry earlier uh, as well, David, you said, what if you were to repress what you have experienced and you wouldn't allow it to uh, to come to the fore in a conversation? Well, I think that's not the that wouldn't be the healthiest of options. The body keeps the score. So if we repress and ignore, there will be other forms how this knowledge will be in bite-sized chunks, sometimes be quite intrusive in our mind or cause us occasionally to have the signs of stress again in our body, you know, racing hearts and sweating and so on. So it is is impossible to completely and forever repress such serious trauma.
0: I often feel that it's, Uh, the family who suffer very considerably uh, when someone is taken hostage. And on release, of course, the whole attention often goes to the person who's been captured. But the family are in need. And we were able, as a unit, uh, uh, as husband, wife, and children, uh, four children, to be able to tell our story before trained listeners. In other words, rather than suppress it and push it down uh, 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 into the inner recesses of the the mind, to uh, come to terms with it there and then as best we could. And if you, I think the theory is, and I think Wolfgang will agree with this, that if you've had a traumatic experience and you suppress it and push it down, the the chances are, in many instances, that in later life, it will make its appearance through dreams, nightmares, and flashbacks. And if you can come to terms with it, fairly soon after the tra- traumatic experience, if you can begin to relate to it and come to terms with it. You can begin, in some measure, to manage it rather than being managed by it. And I think that's what we did. We did get that help, and we're very grateful for that help we received.
2: Wolfgang, would you agree that if you don't raise these subjects with trained listeners – then you know it will come back on you. You will have those nightmares. Are those things that you, that you've experienced with with your clients, for example?
3: Yes, if it's serious enough that it meets the criteria of what we nowadays call post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, which was first probably called shell shock in the First World War. If it meets those criteria, then it's so serious that it will come back and it will come back when you least expect it. If it's, of course, a more generic trauma that where you were not at risk of losing your life or your body's physical integrity. That's a different story. That's a different level. But the seriousness of PTSD needs addressing, as you say, by professionals. But I want I hasten to add as well that while professionals are very useful, of course, and they have their uh, hopefully evidence based methodology and don't use anything else, um, it is any human being that is close to you, that makes a big difference. And Terry was talking about his family. I mean, you prompted him to do so, but from his answer, I can glean that his family was very important. And we know that people who are in the face of trauma, and let's just cast our mind back on the pandemic, you know, people who may have suffered domestic abuse, people who spent prolonged periods of time in intensive care units, uh things like that that all could predispose to ptsd that the best um uh, predictive factor of their outcomes is actually um, how close-knit a a circle of friends they have so if you have a couple of friends that you can trust and talk to uh, the prognosis of your um, trauma is much more positive so that was in a long-winded way i wanted to say you're absolutely right david that We need to talk to someone. And you are also right that we need to talk to a professional, but not just a professional is capable of helping us.
2: Let's go to the ads now. Over the break, it'd be great if you could give the show a rating and review. It really helps us grow our audience. We'll be back in a sec.
1: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech?
2: Terry, Wolfgang's mentioned the the pandemic a few times there, and a lot of people spent a huge amount of time just by themselves during that pandemic. Now, they weren't experiencing the same experiences as you had, but I'd imagine you must have some empathy for those people who were alone for quite a a substantial amount of time.
0: I, I certainly do, and I can understand how many people found that extremely difficult to bear. Personally... They laugh at this. I found it a great relief. <laughs> I wasn't always running around. And I was able to turn that, to do some of the things that I've always promised. My, and I wrote a book in uh, a ch- book of children's stories, actually. I thought, well, might as well have a garden. I've got the time now. And so, <laughs> so, I, so I did that. But for many people, the breaking of a, of a normal structure and having to find an entirely different way of living proved to be a very big challenge. And inevitably, you take um, you take a, a, a deep examination of yourself. And when you do that, you discover, one might say, two sides of your personality. One might say the light and the dark, good and the evil, whatever you might call it. And the temptation is to be, uh, if you're not careful, um, to become over-depressed by the negative sides you see within yourself. And somehow, one has to be able to work to find that inner harmony. And I think one of the problems of our age, there are many problems of our age, of course, and I'm oversimplifying, but one of the problems of our age is that we are out of, of harmony with ourselves. We're out of harmony with our neighbor. And we're out of harmony with our environment. And that is, we're paying a terrible price for that. And somehow we need to be able to gain that greater sense of inner peace, inner harmony, uh, so that we can then relate more effectively with others to find a greater sense of community and also relate more intelligently to the world, which is not just to be exploited, but is to be, (laughs) we are a part of it and to be have that sense of unity. I don't know if that sounds terribly philosophical and airy-fairy, but it's what I believe.
2: No, it it doesn't sound terribly philosophical at all, but I am interested, when you were talking about that battle between light and dark, you at that time were faced entirely by darkness, by people acting in cruel ways towards you. You were on your own. How did you win that fight between light and dark? And, And I guess the other question would be, did you think you would?
0: Well... There were times when, I'll give you one example, one story. and I mean, it's such a big subject you've raised there that, you know, one could spend hours talking about it, so I have to give you one small example. Towards the end of my captivity, I became very ill. And uh, I was so ill that I couldn't lie down. My lungs were filling with fluid, and I had to lie uh, sit with my back against the wall day and night, gasping for breath. And it was at that point uh, when they decided that they would move me to be with other hostages. So after all those years alone, I was moved to be with others. And I was put into that cell. We're all chained together. And I was really quite a disturbing influence really, because it looked as I was dying. And in fact, I was told later that I lapsed into unconsciousness without, without, uh, I didn't know that. However, Uh, At night, when I was really gasping for breath, one of the hostages, Terry Anderson, who was an American American AP journalist, he just leaned across and he put his hand on mine. He didn't say a word. And, you know, I found that tremendously comforting and really, really helpful. And uh, I I suppose I would say from that... um, how important it is to have that sense of compassionate understanding community and where you've got that that level of understanding that doesn't bombard you with words, it doesn't bombard you with, with questions, but just simply as another human being understands and is with you. Now, there are many other understandings and learnings I could take, but that's just one which I think was particularly important to me. And I think going back to your point about uh, isolation and about um, the, pa- the pandemic yes it was a time some people found enormously useful but found disturbing because they were being put in themselves put themselves in touch with themselves in quite a new way and for some that was quite disturbing
2: Wolfgang, can a simple gesture by a colleague, by a friend, nothing too extravagant, you don't have to send anybody any roses at the desk, just maybe say that was a good job. How much of a difference does that actually make, not just to performance, but to people's uh, mental health?
3: Yeah, that's a good word that you're using here, gesture. I remember after September the 11th, actually, the Wall Street Journal called me up and we were talking about how communities can heal. And we actually arrived at exactly that conclusion that small gestures that are quite symbolic help communities and individuals to heal and also to, um, if you like, um, uh, you know, celebrate people's lives together, but also share the grief together and so on. So that's the bigger picture from what Terry was talking about, about something that was very traumatic and you quite rightly transition us also into talking talking about everyday situations in the workplace. It's fascinating how much more attention people um, pay to their uh, line managers' behavior and gestures than we realize, particularly we managers don't realize what role models we are. And those examples you have just given, you know, put your hand on somebody who is suffering or just uh, mention a job well done means and resonates much more with people uh, than we think about. And the um, subtle Uh, communication that unconsciously takes place between people is enormous. There's one interesting study that just comes to mind where they found that um, if managers have a bad night's sleep, there's more discord in their teams. So how on earth that translates itself is an open question, but probably not a difficult one to answer because if we are suffering from a lack of sleep, we sort of are grumpy and that communicates uh, around
2: us. And, and, Terry, you've you've helped a lot of people over the last 30 years. Like you said, you set up um, Hostage International. I understand you've been working with Nazanin zaghari Radcliffe, who was just released from Iran. Do you go out of your way to help people in that
0: way now, Terry? I don't think I go out of my way. I think it is my way. <laughs> 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 um, it's... You know, I've always had, uh, I, I, I'm, crikey, I'm just an ordinary human being, uh, but I, 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 I've always had, deep within me, a, a, a sympathy for those who are on the margins of life. Um, you know, for the outcasts, for the people who are chronically ill and deprived in one way or another. And I've always had that. But one good thing that emerged from my years of captivity was that um, sympathy was developed into empathy. Sympathy is to feel sorry for. Empathy is to know what it's like to be kicked around, to have nothing, to be regarded as worthless, to be thrown out of a job and considered to be just, well, useless. I I know what it's like to be in that situation. And because I know what it's like, that's enabled me to have a much deeper and uh, hopefully more creative relationship with others. And so I look back on the experience of those years. My goodness, would I want to live it again? Of course not. I wouldn't. Of course I wouldn't. But having said that, there were blessings there which I hopefully have been able to use
2: so you came out of that experience changed then you didn't like try and go back to be the terry weight you were before you accepted that life will have to be different from this point on
0: yeah i think we're changing all the time i'm definitely not the same person as i was years ago (laughs) i hope i'm a little little more whole than i was but i'm definitely we're changing all the time and we're never the same so uh yeah I, I press on and hope that I've got another good few years which to continue.
2: When you meet other people who have been in hostage situations, how much of, a, 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 I guess, a relief for them is it to talk to someone like you? I, I mentioned oh. Azanin Zagari Gary Radcliffe. What kind of things have you been talking with her about and what kind of things you talk to the, the other people who come to Hostage International for Health? Well,
0: that's a very, very good point. I mean, I'm in constant touch, either face-to-face or through the internet, with people who have recently been released uh, from captivity. And there's absolutely no doubt that they do find it uh, a positive experience to talk to someone who's been through a similar experience. They say, yes, we can talk to X, Y, Z, but they don't really understand. They don't really know what it's like. You actually do know, and you know what I'm, uh, the things, sort of things that I've been feeling. And it makes a tremendous difference. And one notices that time and time and time again.
2: If you've been through a situation, and uh, thinking about what Terry just said, how important is it that you, maybe even you yourself, reach out and try and find others who have done the same thing or been through the same sort of trauma or experience that you, that you have? How helpful is that?
3: It's probably part of what you do to make sense of of your own experience and uh, to find meaning as we discussed earlier with reference to uh, Viktor Frankl as well. It is important that you share in a common humanity. And I think the other words I picked up from Terry's last statement is empathy. What an important point that is. And we teach that in, in corporations and managers as much as we do in personal life. It also reminds me how much more important emotional intelligence has become over the last few years vis-a-vis IQ, if you like. And ethics of care has um, uh, taken center stage during the pandemic because it made a huge difference how we were guiding people and also how politicians were were guiding people. So I think, yes, indeed, it is important that we share. I mean, it's obviously has never happened in Terry's. Uh, um, history but it's also important that we when we are sharing uh, with traumatized individuals that we do more of the listening than the telling because Mm. everyone's response to stress is of course very personal and is very different and what's easy for one person to um, to conquer and
1: are you ready to enhance your future in tech then it's time to make your move to the uk The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.
3: To come to terms with could be much more a much more long-winded path for somebody else but the one thing everyone has in common is that we need to when we listen to people who have been traumatized validate that what they are experiencing is actually a normal response to an abnormal event and it's never a response that we need to pathologize per se or of or, 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 or collude with people who start blaming themselves or find it difficult to come to terms with life as it is so everyone goes through that journey um, at a different pace and in a different way
2: That was Terry Waite and Dr. Wolfgang Seidel. Both will be appearing at the Watercooler event, being held in association with the Evening Standard on May 25th. For more info on how to get free tickets, go to watercoolerevent.com. How to be a CEO is out first thing every Monday morning. Why not start your week with us? Next week, we're talking to the CEO of Nextdoor, Sarah Fryer, about how the platform is helping local businesses. I hope to see you then.